Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 17 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support and you get a whole lot for it. Early on in my voice acting career, I was fortunate enough to perform a dystopian novella titled Everything Inc. by talented author Jeff Sturdivant. I've always had a penchant for the subgenre in horror for dystopia read. Tonight we bring you two tales related to the topic of what and where we may end up. I mean, what's the big deal? It's not like it's the end of the world. Oh, never mind. Let's get after it. As one Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Perhaps it does seem like the act of running, albeit sometimes metaphorically, impacts us in more ways than we know. Whether you're running late, running on empty, or just running around completing errands, the fact remains the same. And this cosmic horror focuses on a town that does just that. Well, gotta run. And now, for your indulgence, Undone by Warren Benedetto. I'm running. I don't know why. I hate running. I always have. I used to run because Adelaide ran, and I loved her. She'd wake me at 5 a.m., already fully dressed in her spandex running shorts and sports bra, ready to run to the park, or around the track, or along Lakeshore Drive, or anywhere really. It didn't matter to her. She just wanted to get up and out to start her day with some activity to get her heart beating and her blood flowing. I'd remind her of sex's well-documented cardiovascular benefits, along with the additional advantage of not needing to get out of bed to do it. But Adelaide would insist that, no, running was a much better way to kickstart the day. Despite a near-pathological desire to go back to sleep, I would resist the urge to argue with her. 
mainly because I loved her, but also because, goddamn, she looked cute in that ponytail she wore when going out for a jog. Instead, I'd roll out of bed and flop to the floor like a rag doll, making jokes about how I have no bones, how I couldn't possibly be expected to run in this condition. Boneless, limp-limbed, noodle-legged, barely even human. Basically, just a pile of cold, undone noodles in boxer briefs and an old Motley Crue t-shirt. Noodles can't run, I'd say. Noodles are tired. Noodles need sleep. Adelaide would poke me in the ribs with her lime green toenails, jabbing my flabby belly and saying, Get up, noodles! Until I gave in and trudged into the bathroom to brush my teeth and smear on some deodorant. Then I'd slip on my old basketball shorts and a sleeveless t-shirt, lace up the Nikes she bought me from Foot Locker, and follow her out the front door, watching her ponytail bounce as she jogged down the front steps and took off down the street ahead of me. Adelaide is gone now. I'm not sure how I know that. I'm not even sure what it means. What is gone? Not here right now? Not coming back? Dead? I used to joke to Adelaide that the only time a person should run is if they're chasing something or being chased. So as my feet continue pounding on the pavement, I wonder, which is it now? There's nothing ahead of me but the two lanes of Main Street with its coffee houses, antique shops, and local lunch spots. The yellow lines in the center of the road are freshly painted thanks to the fundraising efforts of the Main Street Restoration Committee. The quaint tree-lined street has a slight uphill grade, which makes running up it even more horrible. It's probably only a one-degree slope, but from the way my calves are burning and my thighs are trembling, it feels like I'm running straight up the side of a building. As I pass under the traffic signal at the intersection of Main Street and Central Avenue, I notice the light flashing red. But it's not a steady flash like I sometimes see when the signal is under maintenance. It's an irregular flicker, like there's some sort of glitch, some kind of electrical interference. The illuminated sign outside the corner pharmacy is flickering with a matching cadence, as are the lights inside the store, which makes me wonder if the entire power grid is on the fritz. A stiff wind buffets my face, causing me to gasp for breath. My lungs seem to have too much air and not enough air at the same time. The breeze carries the smell of smoke and a fine gray powder that I first mistake for snow before remembering that it's only September. No, it's not snow drifting down on me. It's ash. Sweat drips into my eyes. It burns like acid, and when I try to wipe it away, the cuff of my shirt sleeve is stained with a damp black smear. I look down at my body and am surprised to see I'm wearing a long-sleeved dress shirt and gray cotton slacks. My shoes are wrong, too. I can feel them rubbing the flesh from the sides of my toes and the backs of my heels. They're my work shoes. Black leather, skinny laces, stiff soles. Definitely not running shoes. It's as if I just stood up at my desk at Allstate Insurance and decided to go for a jog. But why would I do that? I'm not with Adelaide. I'm not chasing anything. That leaves only one other explanation for why I'm running. I'm being chased. I try to concentrate, to hear beyond the sound of my own pounding feet and labored breathing, to listen for footfalls behind me. I tried to imagine who or what 
might be chasing me. I think I hear a muffled galloping accompanied by a sharp clicking. The sound of soft feet with long claws. Is it a bear? There are bears in this part of the state, I know that's for sure. But it doesn't make sense that a bear would be chasing me down Main Street. Even if it was, I would never be able to outrun it. Especially not with how out of shape I've gotten since Adelaide left. A sharp pain explodes in my chest. She left. That's what gone means. Adelaide is gone because she left. Not to swing by the food mark for milk. Not to jaunt down to Target to pick up a new sports bra. Not to rendezvous with her girlfriends at Tricky Dicks for happy hour. No. She left because she didn't love me anymore. Because our relationship had run its natural course and it was just time to move on, babe. That's all. It wasn't a surprise. I knew it was coming from the first time I awoke to find her in the shower, her running clothes on the bathroom floor, her hair already lathered with shampoo, the lone hair tie from her ponytail forming a damp black circle on the bathroom counter. She didn't wake me to go for a run. She let me sleep in. And I knew right from that moment that I had lost her. Three months later, she was gone. I should stop running, I think. Just stop and let whatever is chasing me catch me. What difference does it make if I live or die now that Adelaide is gone? Wouldn't it be better to just lie down in the middle of the road and let the thing behind me rip my throat out? But I can't stop. I want to. I really do. But I can't. It's as if I've lost all free will as if I'm being driven to run despite my best efforts to give up. My legs and arms churn relentlessly, endlessly. They're entirely out of my control. I'm merely a passenger in an autonomous vessel, a passive observer of my own imminent destruction. I'm going to run until I die. The realization comes naturally, as matter of fact, as if I looked out the window to check the weather and saw that it was raining. The thought brings focus, a sense of heightened awareness of my surroundings, and I realize that the footfalls behind me are not that of a bear at all. It's not the clicking of claws on pavement that I hear, it's the footfalls of an army, feet hitting the ground in perfect synchronization, the sound of a military parade in North Korea, not a single step out of time. A glimpse of movement out of the corner of my eye causes me to turn my head to my left, and I see that someone is running beside me. It's Elise Watson, the third grade teacher from Deerfield Elementary School. Her slate gray hair is pulled back in a loose braid that bounces against her neck as she runs. Mascara black and tears stream down her cheeks. She has lost weight since her husband died earlier this year. She looks like a half-deflated version of herself. Dark streaks of perspiration stain her rose-colored blouse and floral print leggings. Like me, she's not dressed for a run either. She's dressed for the classroom, for teaching long division to nine-year-olds. And yet there she is, running in stride next to me. The sight of Elise makes me wonder who else is around me. I look over my right shoulder, then my left. There's Barton Turnbaugh, the assistant manager of the food mart on 8th Street. And Marie Simpler, the seamstress from the boutique where my mother used to buy her dresses when I was a kid. And Timmy Payne, 
the star point guard of the Deerfield Elementary Boys basketball team. There are men and women, boys and girls, young and old, all running in perfect lockstep as far back as I can see down Main Street. They look like a mass of marathon runners who all decided to run in street clothes. Mr. Lindenbaum is even running in his bathrobe. At first, I think that everyone in Deerfield must be running. But as I look again, I see that, no, that's not true. It can't be. Where's Barton's partner, Sam? The two are inseparable. Marie's twin sister, Katie, the one in the wheelchair that Marie has cared for since their mother died. Marie wouldn't leave Katie alone in the house without anyone watching her. It's not a surprise that Timmy's mother isn't there, given the hour. She's probably three pints deep at Tricky Dick's. But why isn't he home doing his homework or in bed? And why isn't Mr. Lindenbaum tucking his wife into bed at Green Tree Nursing Home? It'll be lights out there soon. And where's Adelaide? I know she still lives in town, but I haven't seen her since she left. It's like she just vanished off the face of the earth. One minute, she was an inextricable part of my life. The next minute, she was just gone. She hasn't called or texted or even accidentally wandered into the same aisle as me at the food mart. It's not like she never existed at all, but she did. She was real. I know because I can still feel her there, running beside me. She's not, though. The space she once occupied is empty. The space at my side, in my bed, in my life, empty. Most people running behind me are looking straight ahead, their expressions vacant, their pupils like the flat black circles from my Othello board game. A few of them, though, seem more alert. Their eyes are cast skyward, their chins lifted, their mouths twisted in expressions of abject horror. I turn my head and look up. What I see pushes a silent scream up my throat and past my lips. The sky is on fire. A thin seam of flames stretches horizontally across the air as if the night is a sheet of black paper smoldering at the top edge. My first thought is that I must be looking at the trail of a rocket or missile streaking across the sky. But it can't be. The fire goes on forever, as far as my eyes can see, in both directions. It has no beginning and no end. It's infinite. The fire is not what terrifies me the most, though. That's not what forces the scream from my lips. The real horror lies beyond the line of orange embers smoldering in the sky. It's as if I'm seeing past the torn edge of a tissue-thin facade into another dimension beyond human comprehension. The depth of the darkness is unfathomable. It makes me think of black holes, of the deepest reaches of space, of what might have been there before the birth of the universe, before the sun, before the stars, before time itself. It is nothing, naught, zero. It is death. It's not the death of me, nor any person I know, nor death in any way that has been, or can be, understood by humankind. It's not death as described by religion or philosophy, by physicians or physicists, by the Bible or the Necronomicon. It's the death of reality, 
the disintegration of the fragile veil that humans' collective unconscious has draped over the true nature of the universe. It's the undoing of all that is done. With a startling flash of insight, I realize I'm not being chased. I'm being herded. The thing behind me doesn't want to catch me. It wants to drive me forward into the void like cattle being corralled through the gates of an abattoir. But why, I wonder? And what is the thing, if it's even a thing at all? I can't see it, but I can sense its malign presence, a gravity-like force that propels me forward against my will. Even if I could stop running, I sense that I would still be pushed headlong into the abyss, like a corpse bulldozed into a mass grave. A scream to my left tears me back to the present moment and I turn my head just in time to see Elise Watson plummet through a hole in the street. No, not in the street. It's not a mere fissure in the asphalt. It's not a sinkhole. It's a fire-ringed rift in the reality of the street itself, as if the real world is a film strip stuck on a projector bulb until the celluloid melts. The hole reminds me of a solar eclipse, an irregular black circle rimmed with a blinding brilliant corona that threatens to sear itself into my retinas if I look at it for too long. Another breach in reality opens ahead of me to my right, swallowing the giant oak tree that has stood outside St. Mark's Church for generations. The hole widens rapidly, consuming the churchyard, then the steps where Adelaide and I posed for our wedding photos, then the church itself. I expect the steepled building to crumble into an avalanche of rubble as it falls, but it doesn't. Instead, it seems to fold in on itself like a papercraft art project stomped by an invisible foot. The sound is like a lit match tossed into a bucket of water, a quick perfunctory hiss. Then the building is gone. More screams erupt as people behind me are swallowed by new fissures tearing through the fabric of reality. The flickering of the lights on Main Street intensifies until, somewhere above, a power line ruptures in a shower of sparks, followed by the blue-white flash of a transformer overloading. Every streetlight, storefront, and illuminated sign goes out at once, plunging the whole town into shadows. With the darkness comes a new sound, a cacophony of sorrowful spectral moans that rise and fall like a thousand whale songs droning at once. The wind accelerates to a punishing gale that blows directly into my face, stealing my breath as I try to inhale. My lungs fill with ash and soot. The smell of sulfur and ozone singes my nostrils and scorches my throat. My knees crack and pop and grind, bone on bone, cartilage seemingly worn away by the friction of the run. The skin on my face feels like it's sliding from my skull. Concerned, I touch my hand to my scalp then draw it away in disgust. Giant clumps of my hair come with it. The entire world is disintegrating around me. The seams of existence are fraying. Everything is breaking down. Everything is coming undone, including me. And then I see her, Adelaide. She's walking down the sidewalk, her purse slung over her shoulder, oblivious to the chaos around her. She glances at her watch, then quickens her pace. She's late for something. An appointment? A meeting? A date? The wine bar where we met is just ahead. Maybe she is going there? No, that doesn't make sense. She never drinks on a weeknight. And besides, the world is ending. 
Can't she see that? I try to call out to her, but the wail of the wind snatches the words away as soon as they leave my lips. She can't see me. She can't hear me. She doesn't even know that I'm here. I try to veer in her direction, but I have no control over my path. It's as if I'm on rails, locked into a specific trajectory with no ability to course correct. I run past her just as she makes a left into the parking garage, the one where I kissed her next to her car after that night at the wine bar. I remember the flush of her cheeks, the warmth of her lips, the hint of Merlot still on her tongue. I cry out again, imploring her to turn around, to look at me, but she is gone. Main Street is no more. A blazing line of fire bisects the road ahead, cutting directly through the center of Ace Hardware and across the street through Bill's Barber Shop. What remains is a precipice overlooking a vast chasm of infinite space and time, a living darkness seething with malevolence so immense that it dwarfs the gods of men. A darkness that hungers, that feeds. I should be afraid of it, but I'm not. I was wrong about being chased, about being herded. There's nothing behind me. I'm not running from something. I'm running toward something. Toward the darkness. Toward the edge. Toward the end. And so I run faster, my legs pumping, my clothes aflame, flesh peeling from my bones until I am beyond the road, beyond the town, beyond Adelaide, beyond everything I've ever known, hurling headlong, smiling, screaming into the void. I hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, Undone, by Warren Benedetto. Warren Benedetto writes dark fiction about horrible people, horrible places, and horrible things. He is an award-winning author and a full member of the SFWA. His stories have appeared in publications such as Dark Matter Magazine, The Dread Machine, and Haven Spec, on podcasts such as the No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify, The Creepy Podcast, and Scare You to Sleep and in anthologies from Apex Magazine, Scare Street, Erie River Publishing, and more. You can learn more about Warren Benedetto at his website, warrenbenedetto.com. That's W-A-R-R-E-N-B-E-N-E-D-E-T-T-O.com. Or follow him on his Twitter handle, at Warren Benedetto. Now, imagine a shattered world where our leaders have forsaken its people over time and spun them into lower life forms that work only to feed the machine. Is it real? Is it our future? Who would you be if you were like a prophet who foresaw what would happen in the end? Listen to the story of a protagonist that spent his life raging quietly in rebellion, willing to give up what he loved the most in order to fight a battle he quickly realizes he is too old to win. How will his world end up? Who will win? He or the monster? And what would winning really look like? And now, for your indulgence, 
Red Balloons by Eli Pope. One. A loud thud exploded in front of me. The precise spot which seconds earlier would have landed my body had it not been for the fate from the faint whine in the sky forcing me to halt in my tracks and look up. I would have been pounded by the dead body that just fell, splattered in all its messy pancaked ending in a syrupy red pile of mixed flesh. Mere seconds before, there wasn't so much as a gnat's ass passing gas for a breeze, and then suddenly, from nowhere, came a rush of air hitting my cheeks from below, followed with a moist mist wetting my entire face. This entire episode took me by complete surprise and shook me to my core in a nanosecond, leaving my throat gasping to catch my breath while I attempted to regain my bearings. The atmosphere this evening was hanging heavy and stale, dry as scorched desert sand, but that fact instantly made this wet cloud raining upward from the ground into my eyes and penetrating my lips feel strangely odd. Squirt was the word that came to mind, like a pimple being popped a salty taste across my tongue. I almost vomited. My world had been silent with the only negligible sound being one of a small engine from an aircraft flying several hundred feet overhead. I know it was a plane because I halted my step and looked up, watching it slowly fly past. Its sound stopped me in my tracks in wonder of its relatively low level crossing through these mountains. Dangerously low. Lucky for me, I had stopped to take in the sight because the hum of its engine is exactly what forced my forward motion just in time to be missed by the crashing corpse. 2. We live in a world that is changing quickly, faster than in any other period since the beginnings of written record. I know what you're thinking. It's been said a million times over by each generation claiming the one after was destroying the Earth. But... Have you ever just stopped and thought about all the things that are already lost today? Kids playing out under the streetlight. The freedom to go out with your friends without being tracked by your cell phone. For your safety. Hell, we don't even carry cash anymore. It's all stored in a tiny chip, melted in a rectangle piece of plastic slid into your wallet. And don't even get me started on this damn music today. Let me just say one thing before I move to more serious points. In 30 damn years, the radio, if that will even still exist, won't be re-airing tunes like Old Town Road by Lil Nas and Billy Ray Cyrus like they still do playing the great ballads like Eric Clapton's Layla. Okay, it's official. I'm an old geezer. A badge, I suppose, I wear with a tiny shred of pride one of the last of the good old boys from the good old days. I dug growing up hanging out under the street lamp with the neighborhood gang who were all called home to eat dinner by a bell hanging on their outside wall by the back door. Every damn one of us. And I remember when Layla was released as a single 45 in 1970 by Derek and the Dominoes. Sad song about Eric's love for his friend George Harrison's wife, Boyd. It wasn't about some dumbass half-baked country singer and rapper riding their horses on the Old Town Road. 
It's ridiculous. And can't nobody tell me nothing. I spoke aloud and then smirked. Also drove a 1969 Pontiac GTO with a six-pack carburetor. Finished wrapped in 26 coats of candy apple red metal flake and deep enough gloss to get lost in after smoking a rolled-up doobie. Not a fucking Tesla that takes more oil to produce the dang thing than driving it saves. Thousands of slaves mining that cobalt shit to make the goddamn batteries. But I digress. We smoked illegal weed because we wanted to get high, not purchasing it legally with a bullshit medicinal card because the government finally figured out they could make money from it to line senators' pockets even heavier. Now we're letting goddamn red balloons from China blow over our effing heads just as freely and willy-nilly, collecting data on us or dumping viruses in our air. All the while, our tyrant leaders are making deals and trading gifts with other maniacal dictators so they can fill their personal coffers. Hell, bodies falling from the sky for Christ's sakes, along with debris from satellites that fail and trash our outer cosmos. Only launched into orbit our planet to keep track of everything but the real threat, Congress. The end is near, boys and girls. Dig in deep. Prep for the new world order because the old one is being pussified and stolen away quietly under our noses. Hidden in the backstory headlines, barely audible under the football scores. We are willingly being interred into the matrix of feeding this monster who controls our every thought and move, manipulated by tiny chips we carry and worship like gods. Google filling our brains with thoughts and products we're told are innocuous. Our technology lurks boldly over us, unhidden and willingly without any fear of our reprisal. Too drunk with its need. And it's a monster, friends. Every bit as evil as a vampire or werewolf, and shifty as ghosts. The beast busily makes zombies of us by seducing our brains with its mindless digital entertainment to dull our senses, giving us nothing but a hard-on to distract us from what is really going on behind the scenes. Playing us like fiddles to tunes we don't even care to understand. Keep playing that energy-sucking game with your head buried willfully into the flickering lights of your cell phone with its hypnotizing rhythms. Ignore the fact your wrists tire and become painful from the repetitive actions of punching tiny buttons for no other reason than we're dumb enough to succumb to it. Numbing muscles and tendons with crippling carpal tunnel, stealing our attention away with what is happening right next to us. 3. I turned my cell phone off and left it on the nightstand. I realized the beast was still capable with its other ways of knowing where I am or what I was doing. Somehow, leaving it powered down, silent, and face down on the wooden table gives me a small feeling of comfort and solitude. A time to catch my breath and clear my thoughts while the bottle of Jack Daniels helps soak in that false sense of freedom I know I no longer have as I once did. I remember when I could afford the more expensive, finer whiskeys but they've even robbed me of that joy. Our world, feeling much like Soylent Green portrayed it back in the 1973 dystopian film. Truth stranger than fiction. 
Barry Harrison, the author of the novel Soylent Green, was taken, tried to warn us when he wrote Make Room in 1966. A journalist with the Washington Post wrote in 1984 that writer Harry Harrison was better at evoking the personalities of lizards than of people. I reckon he should now feel vindicated by the fact the literary world was wrong back then. He was a genius. We live with the pain of not listening to his prophecy guised under the science fiction genre. His death is still to this day marked undisclosed. The monster's surely behind it in some way. I most always walk alone in the desert at night. It's the only time my mind feels clear and free from the poison spat at us from the rectangular box which hangs on almost every wall in American living rooms. It's difficult to tell anymore just exactly where the demon resides. It's grown so many faces in its time of rule. CNN or Fox, MSNBC, it matters not. All misinformation to keep our brains puzzled and lost in any truth. If only our forefathers had half recognized it for what it truly was and quietly snuffed it from existence while in its early youth. It's used the old Trojan horse concept that we should have all been taught and remembered. I think that story was likely been squelched dead from the mouths of history teachers. Those books deemed information we need not remember. Now all we learn about are that we are nothing if we aren't connected to the world's web. Education, enjoyment, employment, medical and criminal records, even the purchasing of food, all tied to a fucking digitally linked chain stronger than those shackled slaves linked together while forced to work fields they held no ownership of. Sadly, we don't even fight being locked by this link that confines us. We are in fact addicted to being tethered, satisfied like puppies too tired to pull at its resistance to keep us from freedom. The monster quickly grew very crafty and wise enough to convince us that we need this connection badly enough that we'll actually pay a monthly fee for it. Put me on the plan. Enroll me now. Even those who have no place to call home at night, no pillow to lay their head, nothing but a prayer for the compassion of others to feed them, are still fooled enough by the beast to spend anything they have begged for to be connected in some way to that chain that keeps them as heavily dosed as those who can't afford the faster, more expensive gadgets to sedate them. This tells me we have been trained expertly from every angle to be connected like slaves to apps and instantaneous but touchless and anonymous networks in order to survive. I now wonder about the body who took the plunge from the plane. Maybe they ended up not quite as connected as they were fooled to believe? I was certain it was tied to the monsters. Of course, the television news goons bought and paid for would weave a tale into drug czars or crime bosses. But I knew. Nobody was fooling me. I had them all figured out. I had been washed in the blood splattered on my face. The blood of a brother who broke away from the digital link. Likely the only real crime he committed was being unfortunate enough to get caught being removed from the yoke. Back when I saw this earlier in my life, when I might have been young and crazy enough to resist more than just mentally, I was called a conspiracy theorist. I think those fools back then would find me more of a disciple of the truth now, one that lacked the guts to follow my own prophecy. 
I chose to follow the call of the flesh instead, those urges stronger within. The monster helped exploit my weakness and used it in the form of shapely blondes and brunettes, beautiful redheads that, let's just say I succumbed, and leave it at that. We all suffer our addictions, don't we? A voice that speaks out is a difficult road to hoe. One must realize who to speak with and choose carefully. Poor choices make irretractable mistakes, like plane rides that end in ways unwanted. Entire commercial airlines have just disappeared from the world's existence. How can that be in today's modern tracking abilities unless they weren't wanted anymore by it? We got fed and seduced by at least six generations of old technology that the military likely used a decade ago but have tossed to the side. One can try to imagine what abilities the monsters have now that us on the outside of the circle know nothing about. If they can handpick one individual working against them, how can they lose entire aircraft full? No, I say it's the monsters. It's the way they work, the way they do business. I believe one day, even an old geezer like me will taunt them one time too many times with my now idle and harmless rants. One day, I too will be taken for my airdrop, given anything but a parachute. I often ask myself if I'll jump on my own accord or fight the devils until all hope is lost. It's no longer myself that I worry about, not that I ever really did. It's my son. What does he have to look forward to? He's already lost more than he is aware of never having. Each generation gets freedoms whittled away in small increments. So small, they can't be noticed in comparison to the shiny new toys made available. By no choice of his or mine, he comes from the period in time where those small bits were no longer enough to keep the beast's bellies filled, their hunger becoming too overwhelming to be satisfied slowly. Their greed's thirst forcing quicker changes and harsher outcomes for anyone who makes noise or stands in its way. Freedom now as extinct as dinosaurs, reinvented as social networking. Questions asked and answered instantly with no proof of validity other than Wikipedia. It's become impossible to fight a winning battle now. Not that there are any soldiers to be found willing to man the front line, the young slaves who fought hard in the 60s, placing everything on the line for righteousness, ended up giving birth to coddled babies who have grown too drunken with trinkets designed and mass-produced with the intention to consume their desire of remembering what the past used to be. Morphing into massive lines of workers to give more and more of themselves with a colorful promise of greater entertainment on the horizon. Bigger racetracks and gridirons that are brought to you by the makers of highly publicized beer makers and tech firms. Any conglomerate willing to sell out for a piece of the action using us mindless lemmings busy punching the clock, feeding the mental addictions to the shiny gadgets meant to keep us in step with the machine. Rump, bump, rump. We've been cultivated into assembly robots growing into positions and never aware of what life was supposed to be to us, or our kids. Nothing but consumers of anything put in front of us. Friends, we paled as guarding soldiers of the freedom our forefathers gave their lives for. Failed as parents, me included. 
our children never had a chance because we, like the generations before us, slowly caved in to keeping up with the Joneses. Buying into the one with the most toys in the end wins the race. The legacy passed down year after year until we didn't even see the trap laid out openly and advertised by the 1%. Now they own it all. All the cash, power, and manicured lives, all from the spoils of our backs. We only feel the trickle of rain when they choose to urinate, sprinkling their unwanted waste over us as if it were gold. Yeah, these are the things I contemplate when I'm on my solitaire desert walks. I reflect on my failures to this world. Sometimes I spend the entire time daydreaming of those days of smoking a doobie from Columbia instead of some genetically altered medical marijuana enhanced to dull the pain and remove my memory. Those times in my past are nothing but red balloons hovering high overhead and taunting me from a reach too far to grab the string and be pulled away by the breeze. Very pretty swaying in the breeze and smartly creative at drawing our attention from our realities. Distracted by their shiny colors while spreading their seeds of hopelessness through genetically created viruses we unwittingly allow to be ingested. All because of age-old magic and the sleight of hand. 4. I saw the first sign today. The typical black SUV with darkened windows. It was parked a few hundred feet down the street. Again. They rarely attempt to hide or break their well-known image that we've all grown so accustomed to. I imagine everyone who take, no matter how obviously parked, binoculars pressed against the glass are just hoping it's not for them that they aren't the ones being observed. I know it's really for me, though. I've felt very different. It's funny how attuned I am. I think I knew the morning after I was almost obliterated by the corpse exploding in front of me. I was likely on the watch list already. But all I could do was run. Or, of course, wait sit around until I was renditioned by those who expedite such quiet disappearances. Small aircraft without registered flight plans and payloads drop naked onto the desert for the buzzards and coyotes to feed on. I was thankful now for several things. The first being how my wife and I had foreseen the writing on my wall years ago. She had chosen to take our son and leave. I think she knew for quite a while that these kinds of times were in my future. A man can't help what skin he is born with. He also can't be held accountable for being unable to shed the resistance passed on to him from his father. I knew she wanted no part of that for our boy. I knew it years before when she was unable to keep her college days going of rebelling against the beast like I had. She chose instead to live alongside it quietly with all the others but she always knew I couldn't. I had been angry at first, but deep down inside, I knew she was doing what was best for him. For them. I told her at the time to change her name and evaporate into the scenery without a trace or telling me anything. I didn't want to risk the possibility of giving them up under painful duress. Hopefully, we would meet up again in the next world, if the faith we both shared actually held the promise we'd put stock in. I miss them both and pray nightly they are as safe as possible in this crazy chaos we all share in our existence. I try and picture their faces in my head of what they likely look like now, 
But the images I see, well, they're stuck in those mental snapshots of our last moment we shared before they turned and walked away. My son and her both looking back one last time, briefly, like wondering the same thoughts I held. Would we ever see each other again? A sudden overwhelming feeling of loss and loneliness surrounded me. I felt like the blindfolded man awaiting the firing squad. Take me now, I cried aloud. I need to find them. Hold them tightly in my arms again. I awoke like countless other mornings from the same dream or nightmare. How many years had passed? I asked myself under my breath as my eyes opened for yet another day of wondering when and if we'd ever be together again. 5. The sedan wasn't parked in the same spot this morning. I'd become accustomed to seeing it there and the whole thought process of the spot now being vacant sent instant shivers throughout my body. I would now need to be more watchful today on. I wasn't sure why I was worried. It could have been just a fluke. After all, I'd been silent about the monster for quite some time. Could it have been another resistor they were watching? But then again, was there really any others left in the dark world who cared enough to risk everything? I had felt like an island for years now, abandoned and left to watch the monsters drop every last survivor of a free soul to its death. No, it's me they were watching. I was assured of that. There were no others left to threaten other than me. It was likely my turn to take that last flight over the dark desert night. I rounded the corner from my house on my way to a morning cup of joe before getting back to writing in my journal. I had fallen into a routine that was very predictable. Foolish, I knew, but too old to fight the urge to give it up. Everything went down so quickly that I don't even know how it happened. They were very experienced and all too well practiced. I didn't have time to fight much, let alone my bones being too tired. I think my mind almost wanted it to be all over and done with. Resistance can only live so long if it's not fed with encouragement from others. I'd likely lost the real taste for fighting the day I lost my family. My entire hope was given up with a sad goodbye. My lack of belief in the way this world was being swallowed up and regurgitated back out on its people was just too much. We'd all become sedated with the lies and distraction. I'd made my choice while my family made theirs. It had just been a different one. I had chosen the dark resistance for as long as I kept the resolve, while my wife had chosen to give the facade of happiness to our son. Her decision had hurt, even though I understood. The monster had succeeded in dividing us, much like most of the rest of the country. The world. The hum of the familiar motor became a loud whir as the side hatch opened and let the wind noise mix every sound together into a massive roar. I peered out into the darkness and became quickly very aware that I would soon be on the outside instead in the safe, quiet interior. Would I be given the choice of jumping, or would the two goons merely jettison me through the opening against my will? If there was a choice, which would I choose? to exit quietly like a proud soldier or the struggling, frightened prisoner of war I'd become. 
Six. It seems like a quiet calm would be all you'd hear as one soars through the dark abyss. No other human to roam, no traffic or laughter, no conversation or screams after the gunshots. Only gravity sucking my body downward towards the earth's cooling sand as if it were a vacuum breathing me into the endless black hole. But it's not. At first, my body hurled end over end in such a frenzied tumble that I feel like I was a wadded-up piece of paper being tossed into massive headwind blowing across a starless desert. Once my mind overcame the shock of my predicament, I quickly attempted to fall with grace. Funny thing to think of at a moment such as this, but I managed to gain control of my body and maneuver it into the shape of a wing instead of a tumbleweed. The air surrounding you screams into your ears with such loud hissing, it fights to erase and steal your final attempt at viewing your life flash before your eyes. I wanted to see those moments in my mind's eye. It was, after all, my final moments. Chaotic, yet almost cathartic. I pushed away the thought that at some point everything would end in a sudden jolt. It's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden stop. I smiled remembering my father telling me that silly comical fact of what was now about to happen to me. The wind is biting too sharp for me to open my eyes, so I am unable to understand what direction is up or down. I just aim my frame in different directions, enabling me to feel as if I am soaring free like an eagle through the night. My panic becomes absent, choosing instead to focus my fleeting thoughts of early experiences such as falling in love with my wife and that first kiss. The bright glimmer in my newborn son's eyes as I hold him swaddled tightly in the cotton cocoon that gives him the feeling of safety. The world before I became tainted by its evil and pain. Times before greed and power was understood. In this dying moment, I was free. More independent than I had ever experienced before. It's funny how such a tragic ending could bring the strongest feeling of being untethered to anything of this world. I couldn't remember ever feeling like this before. Flying at what felt like mock speeds, performing twists, rolls, and turns that dramatically shoved my stomach into the corners of my cavity at 4 G's. The feeling was intoxicating. I didn't want it to end. I laughed out loud, gulping in the massive volume of air rushing into my open, flapping lips knowing that in some way, the monster had failed in giving me one last dose of fear before I would disappear from the hell, the final act he had forced my world into. The beast would be the one left to choke and suffer on what they had created. In their greedy ignorance, they blindly let me escape to the next level. My heaven! Overwhelmingly happy memories broke through the terror they believed would be my end, overtaking the loud hiss of the wind that infiltrated my head. I chose to think it was the screams of the monster realizing in dismay how he was the one who had truly lost the battle, leaving me victorious as I flew through the night, turning just in time to see the faces of my wife and son as they peered back at me, racing towards me, this time with loving smiles swallowed with hope instead of the fear and loss that I had remembered as they had walked away all those years ago. We would be together again. Love did overcome hate and allow us to prevail in their end.
our beginning. I sure hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, Red Balloons, written by Eli Pope. Eli Pope is a major writing contributor for Fear from the Heartland. Eli began his love of creating stories back in high school creative writing classes. The passion laid dormant for decades, while life took him different directions. The stories never left, and he finally succumbed to the voices in his head, telling him to put them on paper. And put them on paper he did, earning the Literary Titan Award for all five books of the Mason Jar series. The Judgment Game, The Spark of Wrath, The Glass House, The Reclamation, and Snapshot Into a Killer's Mind, which you, dear listener, can hear on Audible.com, performed by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley. The only thing I will tell you, Billy J. Cater is a bad dude. You can hook up with Eli Pope at his website, elipope.com. That's Eli, E-L-I, Pope, P-O-P-E, dot com. He can also be located on Facebook at author Eli Pope, or search groups on Facebook, The Mason Jar Room. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.